Good morning. Thanks for coming out uh, so early in the morning. I hope it's uh, worth your time. I'll do everything I can to make it be that. My subject is, when good fathers die, it's always too early. I'm going to go at this in kind of a roundabout way. But first, let me make a few short prefatory remarks first. I thank you again for your kind invitation to speak to you here, uh, especially to Paul. I thank Emily Curran for her wonderful hosting. You have a treasure there, in case you don't know it, um, arranging everything. I'd like to thank Carolyn Stewart. She gave me the dime tour of Birmingham yesterday. Appreciate that. And to all of you who have opened your homes to me, fed me, taken me to lunch, and so forth, I'm in debt to every one of you. Second, uh, I want to acknowledge right at the start that I am not a clinical psychologist. I'm just very, very interested in the place where the theology of the reformers and the need of children for fathers overlap. I'm interested in it. So my disclaimer is this morning that as a theologian, I defer to the professionals in the field of psych. But at the same time, I am the son of a father. And one of my mentors was, I think, wiser about fathers and children than almost anyone in the field of clinical psych. And I might as well identify him here. As of five years ago, he's with Christ. But almost everything I say to you today comes in, in one way or another from him and from my father and is n in no way original. The man's name was Dr. Paul Fairweather. He was professor of pastoral theology at Fuller Theological Seminary back when Fuller was a very different institution from what it has become today. Dr. Fairweather was, truth be told, the founder of the Fuller Graduate School of Psychology. He was a founding member of the American Society of Pastoral Counselors, twice requested to serve as president of the American Psychological Association, National. Um, he early served as a pastor in the American Baptist Church, but there was something else that defined who he was. He was a World War II fighter pilot, probably one of our top. He was a wingman, wingman for men like Chuck Yeager, um, as well as for others of that amazing and brave band of brothers. And he was very much like my father. The two of them were the most quietly masculine men I have ever known. Now, many of you know from publicity materials that I'm one of those Missouri Synod Lutherans. We are the Southern Baptists of the Lutherans. The, or if you know Presbyterian circles, we are the OPC of the Lutherans. <laughs> I have a friend of mine in the OPC who tells me his church is the little church with the big mouth. <laughs> One of the things that that means is that we are not capable of doing much of anything without thinking about the theology of it first. Um, Thursday I did some work with a few of you on the father story of all of the Bible, the prodigal son. And today, I want to start with the Reformers' view of sin, as we find it in chapter 3 of Romans, and of justification, as we find it in Romans 4, 5. Now, after I do that, after, I, I, I'm, let me break here. I am surely not going for three hours, am I, John? We'll do academic hours where there's a chance to go to the bathroom and get a hot cup of coffee. That's 
That's that's sanctification. That's sanctification by bladder control. That's like that's like the Presbyterians. If if you wait long enough, you can you can win the vote because the other guys had to make it to the men's room. I swear. Anyway. So because we Missouri Lutherans can't do any of that without doing some theology first, I'm going to do a little bit of that. Then after that, I'm going to flat out, just flat out, going to try and weave a spell over you. Just flat out. I'm going to tell you some stories about my dad. I'll trust your abilities and induction to see why and what it is that a father gives and why we need it our whole lives long. Um, now, underneath, all of that father-child storytelling story really is a rationale, and uh, one that Lutherans don't make use of very often. It's one grounded in St. Thomas Aquinas. Now, you'd expect a Missouri Lutheran to say that St. Thomas's view of how to be saved was off the mark, and I'll say it, it is off the mark. Insofar as I accurately understand St. Thomas, I think his view of sin is not really what we're going to find in Romans 3. I think in his view the sinner is not really dead in sin, a phrase literally from Ephesians. And I don't think his view of justification matches with what we're going to see in Romans 4-5. Uh, pure reckoned righteousness or imputed righteousness saves the sinner, period. But after having said that, St. Thomas had a view of language that is, I think, helpful on the subject for today. St. Thomas said that our human language concerning God is neither univocal nor is it equivocal. Instead, our language about God is analogical. Let me explain. When I say that God is good, I am not using the word good in exactly the same way I would mean in saying my dad was good. God is good in a unique and infinite sense. So I don't use the word good of God and of my dad univocally. But, says St. Thomas, neither do I mean when I say God is good that it is exactly the opposite of what I mean when I say my dad was good. A thousand times no, I don't use the word good of God and of my dad equivocally either. Thomas would say, that when I say that God is good and also say my dad was good, I am using language analogically. Think of it this way. My dad's goodness wasn't the same as God's, but still it was in a way like it. God's love is infinitely greater than my dad's, but still I can see just a little bit of it in my dad's love for me. A couple of you have already mentioned to me that you thought you had heard somewhere that if a child has a really good dad, he or she has an easier time of it believing in God or believing in Jesus. And you've asked me whether that was the case or whether I thought that was the case. I do. I don't know all the literature, but I knew a man who got his PhD in clinical psych from USC and did his thesis on that subject and pretty much he himself exhausted the literature on it. And I know from him that his results were exactly along those lines. What we fathers do has consequences far beyond what we would imagine. And it's probably just as well we don't know that. It's a kind of a heavy burden to bear on the shoulders. But it still is true. 
All right. I would like to look at one of the darkest uh, sections of the whole New Testament. You'll be familiar with it. Romans 3, verses 9 through 20. Um, after his salutation in chapter 1 and an introduction in chapter 1, Paul introduces the theme of his letter to the Christians at Rome in 1, 16 and 17. His theme is what he calls the gospel. As a background for that theme, Paul speaks of sin and God's retribution against it. From 1.18 through 3.20, Paul diagnoses the universal human need for this gospel. In Romans 1, Paul presents the culpability, the guilt before God, of the pagan. He had no Old Testament, didn't know who Moses was, and figured inside in his brain that if there was a judgment, he could say, jump on the Jews, they had the book, we didn't. You, can't, you have no case against us, we didn't know anything. So Paul first tackles that. Romans 1, 18 and following, and says there are things that God has left evidence of himself in, in uh, the heavens, such that if you press those down in unrighteousness, you will be culpable. Don't think you're going to be able to get out with saying we had no book. The Jews, meanwhile, his fellow Jews, are on the side of the field yelling, get them. They deserve it. They're, they're the nations. They're the dogs. Um, they deserve every lick of it. Hammer them. In 2 and 3, Paul turns to his fellow Jews. And he likewise tells them, who did possess the Old Testament, that in spite of the fact that they are much better off in every way in having given, being given the oracles of God, what we call the Old Testament text, they too are guilty before the law of God. It's doers of it that are justified, not the ones who've got the book. They're being moralists, and they're guilty of the same things they condemn in the non-Jews. And then in Romans 3, it's just all, everybody, the whole world. Romans 3, 9 through 20, Paul includes the whole world under guilt and under the wrath of God, Jew and Gentile alike. These are the ones that, uh, the verses that one ought not read when one is depressed. Uh, this will push, push you right over the edge. They are all Old Testament quotations. Um, the darkest, most depressing picture in the Bible. In rabbinic fashion, Paul strings together like pearls seven Old Testament quotations. The first probably from Ecclesiastes, then five from the Psalms, and one from Isaiah. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps, snakes, is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Uh, that's enough to put anybody on Prozac. Huh? But it's, it, this, this is the background of the cross. 
theologians have said, if you have a weak doctrine of sin, you're going to have a weak doctrine of what happened at the cross. If you have a deep doctrine of sin, you're going to have, going at the cross, a total rescue. Um, so, Romans 3, verses 9 through 20, is that darkest, most depressing picture. Three things, at least, in this grim picture stand out. First, the verses declare the ungodliness of human sin. There's no one who seeks God, verse 11. No fear of God before their eyes. Anybody's, 18. It says more than that when people renounce or ignore God, they tend to plunge recklessly into evil. Rather, Scripture here identifies the essence of sin as ungodliness. God's complaint is that we do not really seek him at all. His name is not our chief concern. We do not set him before us, as the psalmist writes in Psalm 54. There is no room for him really in our thoughts, Psalm 10. We do not love him with all our powers, and so forth. Sin really is the dethronement of God with a view to the enthronement of ourselves. Ultimately, sin is a kind of self-deification. Second, the verses speak of the pervasiveness of human sin. Theologians speak of the depravity or the total depravity of man. It's a very often misunderstood phrase. It does not mean that we human beings are as depraved as we possibly could be. Uh, the king in Amos gets up out of his ivory bed and says, I wonder if there are any widows and orphans left in Israel that I've not yet thrown out of their houses. Uh, the doctrine of total depravity is sometimes preached like that, and it really isn't what it means. Um, to, to understand it that way is simply untrue, and it's contrary to our everyday experience. But it mean, what it does mean is not much uh, more uh, encouraging. What it means is that every aspect of me, every faculty, every function, is touched and corrupted by sin, so that there is no part of me that I can say is pure as the driven snow. Or if you imagine prying the gate of heaven open, there is no place in me where I can plant the lever to pry the gate of heaven open. Um, my intellect or my mind is darkened, in especially in things heavenly. My conscience is seared. My conscience thinks like a lawyer, so I can self-justify to any accuser. My will, said Luther, is toward God, not free but bound. I don't have a yes to Jesus in me. My body is dying day by day. My emotions, if I look at them, are totally concerned with how well things go for me. I am an utterly self-centered being. And to get this across, this pervasiveness of sin in all of us, Paul deliberately selects Old Testament verses which list different parts of the body. Their throats are open graves, full of infection and corruption. Their, their tongues practice deceit instead of being dedicated to telling the truth. Their lips spread poison like snakes. Their mouths are filled with bitter curses. Their feet are swift in the pursuit of the shedding of blood. They scatter ruin and misery in their path instead of walking in the way of peace. Their eyes look in the wrong direction and do not reverence their creator. And then third, these Old Testament quotations teach the universality of sin. 
They do it both negatively and positively. Negatively, there's no one righteous, not even one, verse 10. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God, verse 11. There's no one who does good, not even one, verse 12b. And positively, all of them have turned aside. All alike have become debased, verse 12. He, by repetition, hammers home the point. Twice, he says, all have gone their own way. Four times, no one is righteous. Twice, he says, not even one is an exception. Now, to be righteous means a lot of things, but it means at least to live in absolutely perfect conformity to God's revealed law. And those who do not will be damned, period. Comments the brilliant evangelical Anglican John R. W. Stott, quote, but the best man, the noblest, the most learned, the most philanthropic, the greatest idealist, the greatest thinker, say what you like, there has never been a man who can stand up to the test of the law. Drop your plumb line, and he is not true to it. At the final judgment, the God of the Bible assigns only one of two grades, zero or 100. He does not grade the final on the curve. 65 or better is not passing. Those who've lived absolutely perfect lives, as in our Lutheran, the as our Lutheran liturgy says it, in thought, word, and deed, will be saved. They'll deserve it. Those like me will flunk and be damned. Checkmate. Paul says that whatever the law says, it speaks to those under the law, that is all of us, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. The law says what it says first to make my mouth shut. And the law will cause the whole world to be accountable to God. All of our excuses, the ones we learned to use early in life to our advantage, will be useless. Up against the law, every one of us will go silent. We won't say a word. Now what does that mean? You and I, as Adam's children, not only are ungodly, not only infected top to bottom with sin, we can't fix ourselves. Now in America, a priest or pastor has to say this very often. Why? Because we Americans have so much self-confidence. In a way, that's really wonderful. But theologically considered, American self-confidence is an unmitigated disaster. We believe we can fix anything, even ourselves. Positive thinking, a couple of self-help courses, all will be okay. But the Bible, especially Romans 3, says to us, Wrong, O American. I stand guilty before God, and there's nothing I can do to change that. My sentence is a just one, and it is death. Now, God could have erased this world, and no one could have accused him of injustice if he had done that. But amazingly, he did not. He did not. While under no obligation at all to us rebels, he instead put in motion a plan in which he would freely, graciously, and at tremendous cost to himself, satisfy his own justice in our place. You're probably all familiar with the details of Paul's theme of the gospel. In a parish like this one, unlike so many others, it's no doubt actually taught in detail and taught as if it were true, a great blessing in theologically goofball America. Into my hopeless situation, Paul speaks of God acting to rescue me anyway. We hear snippets of this at the end of the same chapter of Romans 3. 
I'll, I'll start at verse 21. This is not continuous or contiguous, but all these are still in the end of that same chapter. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. These same sinners, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. For the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. The chapter that follows three uses Abraham as the example of this, of a rescue and justification at God's cost and not at ours. Grace alone through faith alone on the basis of Christ's blood alone. And Paul uses the case of Abraham. He dominates the whole Old Testament. Abraham is not an example of justification freely given. He is the example of it. And what was it that Abraham believed? It was evidently what he believed that was reckoned to him as righteousness. He believed what God had promised, that an heir, Christ, would come out of Isaac's line. And he believed God's promise that through this yet unborn heir, Abraham's spiritual seed would be in number like the stars of heaven. He believed in Christ. He believed the gospel. Abraham's faith in the promised one all by itself, nude, nude faith in the promise, was what was reckoned to Abraham as if it were righteousness. The moment that Abraham believed the pro in the promised Christ, the moment he looked away from any supposed righteousness of his own and in himself and looked outwards to an external somebody else's righteousness that Christ provided, he provided for all of us who were wicked, Abraham was reckoned as if he were perfectly righteous. The classic verse on this uh, you could always use John 3.16, but this is the one that, that I think really says it so well. Verse 5 of chapter 4. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the wicked, to him his faith is reckoned as if it were righteousness. Abraham's faith in the coming Christ didn't make Abraham righteous in the sense of morally improving him, just the opposite. Something was reckoned to him without improvement. Righteousness was reckoned as if it were his in an instant. The old Lutherans spoke of it as accounted per substitutionum. Something divinely produced in Abraham, faith in Christ, takes the place of what it counts for, righteousness. It's substituted for it. The language of Christianity is the language of substitution. It is not primarily the language of morals. God is not presented as a mother saying, eat all your vegetables. The language of Christianity, if I have five minutes at a cocktail party, and somebody, because I wear my collar backwards, thinks that uh, they want to ask me some religious questions, and it happens, 
I will try, if I can, to get to substitution. That's where I want to go. If I have to do a little of the law to get there, I'll do it, but I'm trying to get to substitution one way or another. That Christianity is about a one-sided rescue that we didn't want and certainly didn't deserve, and he did anyway. At the cross, Paul says, God made him, Jesus, to be sin, who himself knew no sin. Peter says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now, how can this be just? How can God reckon like this? The answer is in Romans 3.24. Gratuitously, or by his grace, through the ransoming that is in connection with Christ Jesus. It's not arbitrary, it's not capricious, it's not unjust for God to do this. If God died for us in Christ, God has every right, having satisfied his own justice, by taking it all in our stead to give us whatever he wants to give us. Luther put it in a kind of a body way in English. God has a right to have his way with us. And what did Luther mean? God has his right to save us for free. He's the one who uh, allowed himself in Christ to be crucified for our sin. He has the right to give us eternal life. Having died in our place, he has a right to reckon to us a righteousness that isn't really ours. Um, in my church, um, it has been it, with it for the last... Um, 20 years for the pastor to wear an alb, which is sort of a white baptismal garment. And I was so frustrated in Southern California with how little the imputation of Christ's righteousness to sinners was being preached in my own church that I went back to the old cassock and surplus. I went back to the old dark black street garment and then what looks like a choir boys thing, a white thing that goes over the top, that visually says imputed righteousness. What saves the pastor? It sure as heck ain't what he's like inside. That's, that's the cassock. But the covering thing is what saves the pastor and everybody else. The free righteousness reckoned to us as if it were really ours in an instant, the righteousness of Christ that God sees. And we must never imagine that there's any virtue in us for believing in Jesus either. Sure, faith in Christ's substitutionary death in our place is demanded of us. The Bible says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. But we are unable to produce this faith in Christ that God demands. As fallen creatures, we hate God. We hate his Christ. We despise any free gift or grace plan. But we dribble and drool for self-salvation plans God has to create this faith in Christ in us, in our hearts, says Luther, as he first created the cosmos. He has to do it out of nothing, and he does. And in fact, the matter is even worse than this. Our hearts are not just devoid of faith in Christ. They're filled with acrid hatred of him, active hatred of the Father. But God acted in our behalf anyway. Through hearing the gospel, God creates faith out of nothing in Christ within our hostile hearts, the Bible says God evidences his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's where you have that, that hypothetical just preceding it. Maybe, perchance, a good man will give his life for his friend. 
in Band of Brothers language, that's a guy, that's a GI with his helmet jumping on a German grenade and getting his chest blown out, but all the shrapnel is absorbed in his chest and the other five guys in there come out alive. And Paul hypothesizes perhaps a, a really good man will give his life for his friends, but God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners or haters of him, Christ died for us. And through this gospel, God causes us to believe that he, God, in Christ, dealt definitively with our sin and our irrevocable condemnation. It will never come to pass. He did this for us. The Lutheran Reformation uh, and the other parts of the Reformation are not really about faith. They're about Christ. Sola fide is a way, really, of saying Jesus' blood saves. It isn't really a way of talking about faith. Faith in America is a word that's just deadly. Uh, I used to be a soprano soloist when I was a young kid and hired to sing for weddings. And I hang, sang this perfectly awful song called I Believe that had these vomit-worthy uh, <laughs> lyrics to it. Um, I believe that for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that even in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray, someone will come to show the way. Yuck. And, and I was too young to know the difference, but I mean, that's the American with faith. He'll talk about faith all day long, and what he means is sort of the close of Gone with the Wind, you know? Well, tomorrow's another day, or every cloud has a silver lining. The Bible knows nothing of this sort of optimism. It has something much worse to say and something much better to say. So I have to be very careful with American audiences to say when, when the reformers talked about salvation by faith alone, they meant salvation by Jesus' blood alone, and it was opposed to any righteousness in us. Faith in the, in the 16th century, one of the ways they described saving faith in Christ our sin they described as in curvitas in se, curved in, looking at our navels, and really, like spina bifida, uh, we were curved of spine so that we only could see our own navels and we worshiped them. And that as God creates in our hearts out of nothing faith in Jesus, one of the ways that that happens is that for the first time, he straightens our spine so that we look outward to somebody else and for the first time in our lives, not inward, trying to find something in us. That it takes this kind of move on God's part to save us, to give up on self-righteousness utterly and say, I have none of that. Is there a plan B? And God says, actually there is. At my cost, I'm going to save you. Uh, so you're going to have to quit looking inside. Now, in our day, to tell an American to quit looking inside is the heresy of heresies. We are the psychotherapeutic generation. And to tell people to quit looking inside for the answer will just cause most to hyperventilate. But the, but the 16th century would have said it. Quit looking inside. What you're going to find is darkness and death and sin. The old joke about the difference between a psychiatrist and a coal miner uh, the psychiatrist uh, differs from the coal miner in that he goes down deeper and comes up dirtier. Hmm? Uh, the Lutheran Reformation was not about faith, neither was the Reformed. Uh, one of the illustrations I use with my kids is this. Suppose you're on a cruise ship halfway, exactly halfway between San Francisco and Honolulu, and the thing 
uh, nobody sees it, but you go overboard. One guy notices and throws you a life ring. And they haul you in, and you're laying on the deck. It is bizarre. If I'm that guy, it is bizarre of me to say, look at that hand. Did you see how I gripped that life ring? I love that hand. Huh? What a hand. That would be bizarre. You look at the guy who threw you the life ring and say, thank you. I would have been left halfway between San Francisco and Honolulu if you hadn't seen me and done that. Thanks. Huh? Faith is like the hand that grasps Christ. Uh, the emphasis is not on the hand. The emphasis is on Jesus and his blood and that it's enough. Um, anyone who looks only to Christ's substitution for him or her and his or her sins, who believes that Christ's cross and shed blood nude, alone, by themselves, without works, is the only hope against God's altogether righteous condemnation of them, is a seed of Abraham, an heir of the promise, never to face a bawling out, let alone condemnation forever. Finally, Paul contrasts wages and gifts. We think wages, he's talking about gifts, he speaks of two kinds of re reckoning. We learn the difference from childhood on. Even as children, we're able to contrast an allowance we get paid for doing chores and a really good Christmas. For the allowance, we worked and got paid for it. But if we had a really good Christmas, it's like it's from another planet. Lots of boxes and our names on them. Says Paul, the man who works gets his paycheck. The employer is obliged to pay his or her workers. That's one kind of reckoning. If an employer would say as he passed a check to the worker, this is my gift to you, the worker would think uh, the employer was crazy. The worker would think to himself, you arrogant nincompoop, I earned that check. That's no gift. That's how God doesn't deal with us. There are no work righteous people, there never have been. Wise people give up on that plan of justification um, because the Bible says that God despises our works if we're trying to earn his favor or forgiveness by them. Um, we, we euphemistically translate filthy rags. I'll leave it at that since we're in a church, but it's worse than the Hebrew. We think that if God is fair at all, if he's a gentleman, he should honor us because of our law obeying works toward our neighbor. The Bible says this is rubbish. It won't work toward God. It won't justify. Uh, if we think we're going to stand in front of the holy God and present our morality and get paid with forgiveness, we simply don't understand the Bible. However, quote, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies wicked people, his faith is credited as if it were righteousness. That's the second kind of reckoning. Here a man or a woman does not work at all. He or she does something which sounds irrelevant. He or she believes on him who declares wicked ones as if they were righteous and at great, great cost to the other guy. Someone else's righteousness is reckoned to me as if it were my own. This is what the Reformation was about. Paul says that a Christian believer is one who believes on him who declares wicked ones, that is you and me, as if we were righteous. That's the gospel. Somebody else's righteousness reckoned to my account as if I had really done it. One, uh, one short story and then I'll open it up for questions and maybe we'll take a break. Um, 
I didn't know it, but there is this sort of Christian Emmy Awards. I didn't know there were such things. They're called the Angel Awards. And uh, for Christian television and media and films or something. And I only found out about this because we were in Christian radio. And so I guess we submitted a, a show uh, attempting to win a prize or something. Well, in order to find out who won, there was this Oscars night, um, this Emmys night, or whatever you call it, at this posh Beverly Hills hotel, the kind where if you go into the men's room, there are warmed real Terry towels for you and a guy handing you one, and uh, aftershave, everything is Italian marble, and so forth and so forth, Beverly Hills. And um, Shane, our tech, and I were asked to go attend this dinner, so we did. And uh, we, were, we were there at the hotel, and I said to Shane, Shane, I've got to have a couple of scotches. I am not going to make it through this stone-cold sober. I know what this group is going to be like, and it's going to be like a Mormon training camp. Uh, <laughs> this is going to be a gathering of the pure, and I need at least a couple of double scotches to get through the evening. So we went into the bar, and as we were in the bar, this guy walked by with an expensive Sony tape recorder. He was meeting some friends, he had some earphones, and the tech said to me, you probably don't know who that was, do you, Rod? And I said, no. He said, that's Roger Daltrey. Uh, you don't happen to know who that was either, do you? And I said, no, if it were Frank Sinatra, I'd know. He said, well, you don't know who the doors are. Trust me, that, that, that guy has some musical talent. Uh, so we go in, and uh, during the course of the meal, I notice on this very nice engraved, embossed evening's uh, uh, picture of everything that we aren't even mentioned. We, we don't get second mention, third mention, fourth mention. We aren't there anywhere near a prize. And I looked over at Shane and I said, by the way, Shane, I didn't ask you this. What show did you submit? for us. Which White Horse in episode? And he said, well, I knew what kind of a group this was going to be, too. I knew they were going to give prizes from films that didn't show a single breast and give prizes for films where there wasn't a single swear word. So he said, the, the episode of the White Horse in that I submitted the tape of was, God justifies the wicked. Well, of course, nothing could have gone worse in that kind of pure group, even though it's from Romans 4 or 5. Nothing could have been worse for selecting a Christian show asking for an award than God justifies the wicked. And I said, Shane, that was inspired. That was absolutely inspired. God justifies the wicked. All right, let me, let me open it up. We've got an open mic, I guess, for questions. We'll leave the biblical material now, and uh, I'm going to do some storytelling after our break. Paul? I find your presentation, Rod, extraordinarily evocative and uplifting. I've been uh, attempting to teach exactly the same message that you've just gone out for the last nine years. But when I've uh, tried to apply it to the issue of homosexuality in the current crisis, the place has gone ballistic. How do you explain the fact that that category seems to be exempted from this teaching, and you can teach nine years or 90, and people don't connect it? 
Well, I think, first of all, Lutherans are terrible ethicists. We are. We're awful ethicists. Bonhoeffer just gave up. He knew Lutheran orthodoxy, and he knew Bart, and he tried to meld them together. But his book, Ethics, he finally just stopped. So that's a disclaimer right off the bat. We are not very good ethicists. Um, secondly, I think it's important to say, and, and, uh, and this will rile the group, there will be homosexuals in heaven. Just as there will be crack dealers in heaven, whores, and the ones that I hate will be their IRS agents. Just <laughs> galls me. And maybe a congressman or two. That galls me too. But every, every one of us has groups that we think ought not be there. Um, but that has to be said right off the bat because the imputed righteousness of Christ covers. Now, part of what I said about the incurvitas and having our spines straightened, part of that is to acknowledge that we have no virtue in ourselves. Christ is all we've got. As I understand it with the homosexual, part of that is, will you call it what Romans 1 calls it? Will you call it sin? And this gets to be a real problem. No. Romans 1, I think, is the one that isn't really in the conversation enough. There are other passages, but that one is not enough in the conversation. The, the homosexual will not be admitted into heaven because he didn't fail to act on his inclinations for the rest of his life. The good news is not you're an alcoholic, just so long as you never have another drink, you'll make it. That is not the good news. The good news is much better than that. Um, but as far as the details and the ethics of it, I probably would be able to do no more than simply read Romans 1. Just read the text. In Lutheran Sweden, I've heard that it's now illegal to read Romans 1 in public. So much for church-state Lutheranism. Um, but I don't think I could do any better than saying, just reading Romans 1. I would never have guessed the connection between homosexuality and idolatry that you find in Romans 1. I would not have guessed that. I would not. It sort of takes me by surprise. But I think that's all I would be able to do to say, would be to say, this is what God's word says. And to make sure that before I even got into it, I made sure that I said, all wicked will be admitted into heaven as believers in Jesus. So it's not a matter of, I'll be there because I don't do what you do. I would love to say that to tax agents. <laughs> you don't know how much I would love to say that to IRS agents. But it's not sound and biblical. We're both wicked. And Christ's blood is greater than his wickedness as well as mine. So I'm sorry I don't have more detail on that, but Lutherans are just lousy ethicists. <laughs> yes. Oh, here comes a mic. I really appreciated what you had to say about total depravity and the universality of it. And I just want to mention there's a play in town right now with the most improbable title 
called Urinetown, which ends with the most incredible doctrine of original sin mm. and universal total depravity that you will ever see. My wife and I were devastated when we saw yes. it. It was wonderfully done. Yes. Uh, if you can make yourself go to that play and get past the name, you'll not only enjoy it tremendously, but it's, a, it's the gospel in that Great. respect. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's part of the Birmingham Broadway series and it's at the Civic Center. And there are tickets left. It's tonight and tomorrow, I think, is mm -hmm. today and tomorrow is the last two. Yeah, one of, the, one of the reasons it's so hard to get across a sound theology in America is that we just will not abide that sinner stuff. Part of it, I understand, is because of the bad preaching of the Second Great Awakening. You know, the sort of, oh, whatever went on at the saloon, that's what sin is. Well, Wesley's effect in America was such that the Second Great Awakening um, was the, the uh, evangelist coming through the frontier town, and in that day you could sort of locate sin in the saloon. And what we did was we froze in time the things that went on at the saloon as what sin is. There was cigar smoking and whiskey drinking and uh, theater of a sort, and prostitution, and card playing, and all the things that are the blue laws that have sort of stuck forever after that. Uh, I can understand how people would say, uh, there's a lot about that that's very trivial. If those are God's greatest concerns, he's confused. And I would understand how they would say that. On the other hand, if you translate it in the way that you're talking about that this play does, if we translate it into the things uh, of today that are a little too close to home, the American says, well, that's just too negative. That's just too negative. And God has a terrible time with Americans in this sense. The, the good news doesn't come until there's... Why did I start with Romans 3? Because it's really dark just dark. There isn't a candle in the place. The whole race is condemned rightly. And then in Romans 4 comes the turn, like in a fairy tale, that's too good to be true. Um, a friend of mine who's writing a book, an intro to doctrine book, sent me here with Galley, and the section is on justification. And I'm going to criticize that thing. I read a little bit of it yesterday, and 